Here we go. Hey, hey, y'all. I'm here with Alex again. Alex, Hi, how's it going? Uh, for those of you that haven't listened to the other uh, Foucault talk on the archaeology of knowledge, uh, Alex, perhaps you'd like to say something about yourself for, for anyone just tuning into this one. Yeah, I'm a second year master's student at uh, Western University, and uh, my research is on Foucault, primarily his early stuff. Um, and specifically the archaeology of knowledge. So Dave and I did a two-part podcast uh, about the archaeology of knowledge, and uh, now we're following it up with the order of things. So I don't, I don't know if it, w- if it would be better to listen to this one first or the archaeology of knowledge. <laughs> I think you'd have one to start. First. You'd have to go back and forth. You'd have to like. It'd be like trying. I remember in one of our one of the courses we took on Derrida. Our prof made a joke about um, reading Derrida and then reading Plato. Like, how do you read Plato without reading Derrida? And how do you read Derrida without reading Plato? Sure. It's like, what, what comes first? But in the, especially in the case of this, right, where so much of what he does here is readdressed in the archaeology of knowledge. Right. But also the the um, methodology or the techniques or intentions that he uh, does in the order of things he talks about those and explains them in the archaeology of knowledge. Yeah. So, so if anyone, uh, it's up to you. Do this choice, I guess. If yeah. you're, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're listening to this one first, you'll probably be fine, but I don't know if you, if you take this really seriously, you might have to go back. Uh, but here we are with the order of things, nevertheless. And we were talking before starting this, not, not exactly sure where to start because it's, um, it's a little bit, confusing whereas we could start from the preface but at the same time there's also an urge to jump right into Las Meninas but at the same time we were saying that there's not that much to say about Las Meninas so we'll just start with the preface in which in which case uh Alex what what was it that you wanted to bring up right so the like one of Foucault's central topics especially in this text I would say but that he mobilizes in his later work is the idea of the episteme, uh, which is his term. He defines it like as the epistemological field. Um, I'm looking at page uh, 22 in the preface here. Um, uh, Where does he say? He talks about it as like the space of knowledge. Um, In this account, what should appear are those configurations within a space of knowledge which have given rise to the the diverse forms of empirical science. So it's it's like the the epistemological conditions at any one time. And and what we mean by that is or what Foucault means by that is the con- what the the conditions that determine like what can become knowledge. And, and like what counts as knowledge and what counts as like pseudoscience or something of that ilk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we think how would epistemology derive? Obviously, derive yeah. There's obviously um, an etymological connection there between the two. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting, and like this is this is, uh, I would say, like the overriding theme 
of this text is that um, the connections between um, different discourses within the same episteme are greater than the connections between two discourses that are in different epistemes. So I'll give an example. Um, this text is in part his um, attempt at uh, giving the history of three different sciences, right? So uh, general grammar, the analysis of wealth, and natural history. So his point is that natural history, uh, the classical, the, the discourse within the classical episteme is more connected to the other discourses within the classical episteme than it is to uh, biology, which Foucault thinks is uh, the descendant of natural history, but also very different. So, uh, I mean, it's hard. I can't remember the names, like the actual figures that he talks about, but someone like Dar Darwin would be uh, less related to the classical episteme. So even though... Um, traditional um, histories of ideas would want to say there's a direct um, evolution uh, if you'll pardon the pun yeah. between natural history into biology Foucault's point is um, those straightforward histories of ideas that want to see continuity and ignore discontinuity um, are missing a large part of the history of ideas yeah for sure i i liked that was a good way to put that and i hadn't i hadn't thought about it in those terms um especially the distinction between two different discourses that occupy two different epistemes even if they might be somewhat related right from the transition from natural history to yeah no biology. He, yeah he's definitely not saying there's no connection mm -hmm. um he just wants to question and i'd say like undermine the uh lazy connection or like the the taken for granted connection that um he sees a lot of intellectual historians making right and the and that's one of the things he brings up in the archaeology where he says something along the lines of or as you corrected me last time you said that it's not as though Foucault was just laying out a telos, right? He he in yeah. he says in many ways this could have happened any possible way. Right. Which is something that he wasn't perhaps quite as clear about as he could have been right. here. Yeah, where it seems as though you could read into it and say, Oh well, these are just these processes from age to age and then you had these different things develop in accordance with the conditions of the right, previous right, right, right. Yes. esteem. And um Again, like that point that he makes is in distinction um, from the traditional like uh, history of ideas that I would want to say or sometimes tend to say, well, we had natural history, so the, the next necessary step in the analysis of life is biology proper. Mm -hmm. There's some type of like determinism or necessity in the, the development of ideas. Yeah. It's, Again, like we can get into this later, but within the modern episteme in particular, right? Like Foucault's criticizing that people who would want to see a teleology to history, right? So like your Hegelians or... Yeah, 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 um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and I know 
I, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring up the Borgia thing. So in the preface, <laughs> he mentions Borgia's saliva, right? He talks about that as the kind of platform from which things can come into being, or like it allows for the condition of their possibility, in a sense, as that is the base on the tongue or whatever. Right. And then for, from there, all things are, are supposed to derive, right? But it's, it, it's, um, it's only a condition, and that condition is contingent. Right, thinking about the Epstein, how things might change across time, and how that very base changes. Where right. I think one of the important things to take from that is that it's not as though there's always this kind of neutral base. And from the classical age, or we look at the, the Renaissance or whatever, whatever the conditions were, or the discourses prevailing that time, it's not as though they all came from some kind of neutral, flat base. Right. And they just sprouted up. And they just happened to be like a different plant. Like if we were thinking, of, if I were to stick with that analogy. Um, but that even in what we often take for granted, that uh, the conception of something coming into being is not in itself neutral. It's something that abides by a certain logic, certain right, codes, right, a certain right. order, right? What is allowed to come into being, essentially. Right. And again, like we can get into that a little bit more later, I think, where um, we might flush it out a bit more. But um, I think what you're getting at is the... Uh, he talks about modernity as the episteme of history, right? Where I, th- I think you're right, like that. Um, uh, history really is the the mode through which all things are viewed, right? right. So, like, yeah, a thing is nothing more than it what its history is, yeah, or something like that. And even that idea, right? Thinking about things in terms of history, is, as you right. just said, right? So, like, you could contrast it. Um, uh, with like Arist- Arist- Aristotelian uh, <laughs> metaphysics, right? Where like right. the spider is being spider. It's is its spiderness. Uh, it is its telos, right? So there's no there's no history there, right? Mm, yeah. Like it doesn't matter what the spider did a day ago. Yeah, that does that has no weight on what it it's being spider yeah. today, mm-hmm. right? And there's also no idea of like you know, special evolution. Right. right. So there's a void of history in, in that model, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention about the episteme, bef- just kind of like as laying a groundwork, um, I don't have the citation right in front of me here, but he makes it clear at one point that there's only one episteme at a time. So it's really um, like a macro level um, that determines the types of discourses that can be created or can be had. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have some problems with this, but we'll bring this right, up later. Right. There's a lot that he's not clear about, right? Yeah. Um, or like, just like doesn't address. Yeah. <laughs> so you wanted to talk about Las Meninas some? Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I was just I was just looking here in the preface though, but like not not to take this up. Just how he how he says that thinking about he just says in the preface how man is a, a contemporary invention or it's a new invention and that's how he right. ends the book. Like right, I, that's the I really, wish I could write like this. That's, so sh- <laughs> that's the real hook. Full circle. That's the real hook. I think that when he was writing this, he's like, this is what's going to move books. Yeah, right. Yeah, is yeah. saying that man's a recent invention. Yeah, which is like kind of what the book's about but yeah it takes on like a thousand other things yeah as well. yeah exactly 
it's a bit theatrical to to state it like that. I think. Yeah. That's only part of what he's talking about in the book. Uh huh. So, yeah, Los Los Meninas. How do you, how do you pronounce it? Meninas. That, yeah, that's how I've been saying it. Yeah. yeah well, in French, it's Les Suivantes. Which oh, I, right. I don't know what the significance of that would be. It'd be interesting because that means like the next or what is to come next. Oh, that's a lot better then, right? Which I think I think, I think there's some. See, I don't know what Meninas means, I, but it like, probably means the exact like, same um, thing. <laughs> Just like in, an attendant, like uh, what's the right word? I want to say like chambermaid, but oh, that's not quite right. I think that's right. what it is. That would make sense. In the, in the it's context. like I think it's like the in the painting the. Um, princess has all these um, attendants around her, yep, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's what it means. Wow. Or I think that's what the titles. See, I should have looked that up towards. before I read all this. That that would have given me a different lens, or I would have had a different lens to to read it with, if that was what I was we were getting at. But for for those of you listening now, you better bring it up on on Google or something the right. image if you don't know there's what there's a lot going like. on there yeah it's uh it's an interesting image I would put it up on here but I don't want copyright to poop on me right so what what is what is Las Meninas Alex what is it doing to uh, us well maybe I'll give like a, a two second description of it um because we're working in an audio format um so it's painting and on the left side there is a big canvas we see the painter who's kind of stepped back from the canvas, looking directly at us, the viewer. Um, in the foreground, in the center, and on the right, there are there's the royal princess, there's a bunch of attendants. Um, in the center, at the back, there's an open door with some type of gentleman looking through the door, looking straight at the viewer. And then also near the center back, there's... Um, a mirror in which we see um, what is the the royal couple, the king and queen, in the position where the viewer is. Right. Which which is not clear immediately, and that's something that he clarifies as far as the mirror goes, right? Because you, not on clear. first glance, it might look like just another portrait on the wall. Right. I think that uh, you have to bring some context to this to know that it's the king and queen. I think. Right, which would have been clear the time the painting was painted. Right, right, but is not necessarily evident to a contemporary viewer. Mm-hmm. Where do we go from here? There's so many Where things. Where do we go from here? What their gaze or their? Well, it, it implicates us in a certain way, because. So can I ask you this? Yeah. I, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, no, no. Please, say. please. Do uh, it. Why this painting? Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't want to bring I have, that down. I have the answer, or I think he gives us the answer. Um, he says at one point, again, I don't. He gives a plethora of other, like Don Quixote, right? That that yeah. serves his purposes like much better, as far as like a, a literary-type artsy example goes. Right. But I don't... Like, I'm okay, what is the answer? What is he... Why, why is he um, doing this to us? Let me find the exact page where he says this. Oh, I can't even find it. Um, but he says it's a, it's represents representation, right? The subject matter is representation itself, which is the character of the classical episteme. Right. That's the defining um, mode in which that episteme operates. Yeah. 
And so, I, yeah, that makes sense. I guess if you're having some something being drawn in a portrait, right? There, there, so there so you go. it's not like a regular portrait where the um, you know you just have a a portrait of an individual, yeah, right. Or and it's it's also I think distinct from um, paintings where the painter shows themselves at work, mm-hmm. uh, in which you might say the subject is painting. Yeah. Or painterly life or something like that. Yeah. But the the um, varying types of representation and um, viewing that happened in this painting, I think, make it distinct in that way. Right. And Yeah, absolutely. In that way, it's rather mysterious because there are, of all the people in the image, there are th- nine people in the image and a dog. Of those nine people, one, two, three, four, plus five, five have their gaze fixed towards us or to fix towards the royal couple, right? But of the other people, every single other one has their uh, face cocked to, to one direction like, or other, uh, looking at the other person, looking or something, yeah. in a sense. So there, the, you, what you get is this very circular effect, right? Yeah, I mean, he goes into it and... and like draws X's between yeah. based on people's eye lines and, and stuff like that. I'm not, I don't know enough about art history or like art analysis to comment on any of that and like how valuable of a yeah. critique or analysis that is. Yeah. The kind of the Fibonacci sequence type thing is, as far oh, as the, like yeah. the Mona Lisa goes, I mean like the, the golden the, ratio, the, uh, the technical aspect behind the art. Right, stuff. No, right, I'm with right, you there. Right. I don't, I don't know oh. enough of that, but the, yeah, there are a lot of intersections that he really focuses on, like the, as far as the intersection or the cross between the um, canvas and the guy standing at the back through right. the door, and then of the gaze of the people on the right, and then the mirror, and how there's that um, like the intersect right in the center of the of the yeah it's and canvas it's, or something yeah and the, but he spent like. I, that makes sense for this to be a, um, a painting or a portrait about representation. I get it, but there's he spends so much time focusing on all this other stuff as well. He right. focuses on you know the fact that they're royalty. He focuses on that on the, all the intersections, all the technical aspects of it. That seems if we were to just take it as being an example of representation or representation of representation by analyzing the portrait, he goes like much further than that. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And then he goes and does it with Don Quixote. He's like, yeah, you can see this here as well. And it's like, well, why did you, why did we need one or the, why did you have both? It seems as though. Right, right. So I think Don Quixote for him or, or Cervantes is um, important because Foucault thinks he's on the threshold between two epistemes. How so? Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the mystery. The Foucauldian mystery. I mean, Cervantes is doing a lot more than just representing, right? Yeah. So I guess he would be between, like, a Renaissance uh, episteme and the classical episteme of representation. When was Don Quixote? 1500s. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. I'm not... 
I, I don't find all of his analysis of Las Meninas or Don Quixote uh, clear in w- how you apply it or like what it says about his like macro level argument. Right. In a sense, it feels a little bit super, superfluous, but I like yeah. I don't want to say that of no, him. No, certainly not. I mean, I would be interested going back and rereading it uh, after finishing the text. Uh, and seeing like, oh, does it make much more sense now? Yeah, you know, or like, is the necessity of those passages um, much clearer now? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah that, would, that would be especially good having actually read the whole thing and seeing where he goes with it. I mean, Don Quixote is really, really interesting. I mean, have you read it before? Or like no, I haven't. It? I haven't actually. I've read only it. read passages, but it's like very. Um, uh, has like so many levels to it right in which it uh again like represents authorship and yeah. represents representation in a literary work right right so like uh if i remember correctly like it opens with a character who is the author of don quixote saying to his friend like yeah i don't have citations for this and his friend's like oh just make them up mm-hmm. and then he goes and finds a translation and tries to track down a translator and like there's all these different levels of representation happening again it's not just a straightforward representation of don quixote right so you might might make a similar argument that it's another representation of representing yeah and that that i i guess in a sense then the um, the method he mobilizes when thinking about Las Meninas can also be valuable. And in that way, you know, whether it be an epistemic analysis or an analysis of the episteme, we enter into kind of like a, a hermeneutic territory where it's like almost exegetical, right? We're, we're digging into like a specific text and he's sort of opening up the terrain for, you know, what he's going to do with archaeology here. It's like, right. how deep can I go with like this is how I read it because there were moments when I'm like okay I don't see how this is going to be relevant just because there's so much like that he takes right. up in like Las Meninas yeah that I don't see how he's going to string this all together so I, I had that moment when I'm like okay let's try to think of the method here and then of course after this you know he starts to think about archaeology and hermeneutics or right whatever. so um, those long um uh, seemingly or, or like um, maybe seemingly um, superfluous examinations like is that just him doing the archaeological work on a particular text right yeah but then then archaeology of knowledge Foucault would be like uh, see I'd, I'd be curious to see what archaeology of knowledge Foucault would say specifically about his analysis of Las Meninas like what perhaps if there's anything missing right like to what extent does he not account for the, or to, let me reframe that. To what extent does his analysis of Las Meninas here perpetuate and promote the notion that there can be something kind of traced through uh, a given cultural artifact, right? Uh, it, it has a telos, it has a history, it has yeah. all these connections that can be with enough rigor traced, which I feel like is something in the archaeology is like, okay, it's not that simple. Right. And he wants to avoid that. He wants to, like, uh, 
right? Like the thing I always go back to is read texts or statements as monuments, not documents, right? Yeah. And for him, that means not uh, not coming to a text with a anticipated meaning or teleology or um, like meta historical narrative that you want to fit the text into. Yeah. But uh, at one point in the archaeology knowledge, he says like uh, something like, "I've replaced all these other categories that we." traditional intellectual history used to use like the author the oeuvre or the corpus and come up with my own categories but like how do i justify this are they any better yeah basically right yeah. like do they actually do something novel or uh yeah better in some way right so i think uh i mean with foucault you're always wondering like how much of the way that he writes is genuine and how much is like affectation, right? Uh, or just like performance, <laughs> right? So like, does he actually think there is a risk of he, him performing the same type of operations that he is critiquing? Or does he just want to uh, perform that um, self-analysis and uh, like self-awareness to um, forestall critiques of him that he mm-hmm. that he sees as p- like potential. That's a yeah, that's I a whole have... other question about like method, and you, I mean you have to be careful about uh, trying to like read someone's psyche into their yeah into their texts yeah, yeah especially because right? we'll enter that that terrain of the unconscious and stuff like that these kind of universal reference or whatever yeah and they get to the sticky territory but like. I mean, the, I think the question is definitely there. Like, does he genuinely mm-hmm. believe that he is susceptible to that risk? I'm not sure. I, he, like, he's, he strikes me as a person, because he, he says at one point, I can't remember where, but he's like, don't expect me not to change, right? Don't expect... It's, me, yeah, it's right at the end of the introduction to the archaeology. Knowledge. Right, right. Like, don't expect me to, like, hold one opinion about something, because that's not what, like, doing whatever this is is yeah, about, right? there's an even... Uh, or what I think is an even like um, more powerful, or maybe just a different um, iteration of that idea, um, where in an interview he said he wants his texts to be like fireworks or like explosions, and to like uh, self-destruct after use, <laughs> something like that. I'm done with this. Well, I so the, I read that as not even his more than just his own use like after the text is written yeah right it's like it's like when he was alive you should be asking what's Foucault's next text mm-hmm. not like what has he just written yeah like what's he gonna do next yeah um yeah um can I suggest that we uh talk about like the the argument that he makes in this text and like the different epist- epistemes that he draws out um, it's fine by me. So I would I would say like the the main topic of the text is the classical episteme, right? Yeah. And it's um, iterations in the analysis of wealth, natural history, and uh, a general grammar. Right. Right. Um, and he claims that the like I said, like the mode that 
episteme works in is representation, right? Um, I don't know. Did you have specific questions about that? Um, like as far as language goes, I do. So okay. if, if we, th and he, he has that kind of odd part. He says that um, Hebrew retains the trace of similitude or si the semblance, I guess, to a real like reference more than other languages. Right. This is on page like four. Yeah, um, there's a. Where did it go? Um, he said something about that. I'm, again, not going to be able to find the quote right away, but um, Hebrew words have, he quote, fragmentary monuments of pre-Babel language, Yeah, which was full similitude. I mean, that caught my eye because of, he used the word monuments in particular. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, why Hebrew? I don't know. Like, I don't know either because yeah. like we think of the Tower of Babel like of course we think of the Old Testament in that in that way right. uh, but no that and I had a I was a little bit um, resistant to that because I was like okay how is he is he romanticizing in a sense this kind of like this uh, kind of originary type right. language is there is there a possibility of that of course he's only speaking through the that particular episteme, like whatever logic pervaded at that time. But now, of course, the conditions have totally changed. We think of like um, language prolifer proliferating endlessly and f flowing through time and space or whatever. But that really struck, um, that really stood out to me. And from there, I, you know, I started to think about uh, representation and how like language developed certain, had developed its meaning. Right is not necessarily being associated with a like a referent per se, but then you enter like the his um, uh, his argument around sympathy and antipathy, kind of the conditions that allow for language to develop their meaning in relation to other words, as opposed to necessarily being in relation to like real thing, kind of moving right, through right. those epistemes. So I have, I have a quote here that might help um, our previous discussion of Don Quixote as well as what you were just saying. So page 47 he says, quote, Don Quixote is a negative of the Renaissance world. Writing has ceased to be the prose of the world. Resemblances and signs have dissolved their former alliance. Similitudes have become deceptive and verge upon the visionary or madness. Things will remain stubbornly within their ironic identity. They are no longer anything but what they are. Words wander off on their own, without content, without resemblance, to fill their emptiness. They are no longer the marks of things. They lie sleeping between the pages of books and covered in dust. So, I think he sees the Don Quixote as um, bridging the Renaissance and classical epistemes, moving from an episteme, the Renaissance one, in which words were somehow still tied to their referent. Yep. And like you think of a lot of um, like religious texts, and again, like this is not my specialty, but where the appearance of a word was itself powerful and tied to its referent. Um, and Don Quixote moves into the classical episteme in which uh, there is that 
that tie between uh, referent and its word um, has been cut and then that leaves the world open to all the miscommunication, misidentification, um, and madness that Don Quixote demonstrates. Right. It, it makes... So, uh, this is like the tie back to the, to the uh, title, right? Like, it makes um, the world a world of resemblances rather than a world of order in which words are tied to the things they identify. Right. But he, he makes that distinction between when he says that on page 27, he says that this is why sympathy is compensated for by its twin antipathy. Antipathy maintains the isolation of things and prevents their assimilation. It encloses every species within its impenetrable difference and its propensity to continue what being what it is, whereas sympathy is that thing that allows things to have that um, similitude, that resemblance to other right. uh, significations, whatever, to to other forms of language that have already moved away from the terrain of the referent, of the real, of the world. But then I'm, then <laughs> we're stuck in this. So okay, he he says that there's almost like a that this almost occurs naturally. Like, this is something that, that pops in. This is one of your gripes? With like, him? in a sense. Like, he... he and I, a lot of my gripes are really resolved if I consider the archaeology of knowledge. But uh-huh. here it really seems as though he says that, okay, you have this kind of phenomenon where only things can come into being precisely by their negation of other, like... Uh, signifiers or whatever other other mo- other linguistic things or by their having accepted that thing right and we can think of perhaps Derrida here okay. the, the differ- difference type type right. thing right. Um, where you, you are not so much designated by what you are but precisely by what you are not those things that you can slip away from but I was wondering in a sense to what extent does something like force play a role where there is a very calculated attempt to bring certain things into being cer- certain linguistic okay. things into being okay your your critique is different from what i thought you were going to say um, <laughs> uh i mean i'd be curious to think what you to hear what you thought i was going to say uh, we yeah we can we can mention that uh later remind me um yeah uh i don't have a good answer for you um because there seems to be an omission of like, of just force or like political right, power. Right, right, right. The answer might um, be in a, a different text, and I feel bad referring no, to another should. text. You but um, it's in the in the beginning of um, uh, what is it called? What was the one at the end of the archaeology of knowledge? discourse on language yeah in there um i think he gives some hints so he talks about like the he he expresses it um in the first person but i think what he's doing is talking about the author in general the author's hesitance to begin a new discourse and 
part of that is because of like the danger or the potential within new discourse to be disruptive. Right. But he really the the part of the point of that the the first half of that text is um the author doesn't actually have that power. Like that is a um that is an invalid concern because the both the power to begin um, new discourse and what discourse can be begun is determined by the episteme. In that text in particular, I think he calls it like the cultural institutions. Um, but it, like if we're thinking about the order of things in particular, we could talk about the episteme. And the danger of discourse, or the, the um, revolutionary potential in discourse is anticipated by the episteme or like the cultural institutions. So anything that can come into being has already been accounted for in a way. Which is like, that's a very unfocodian thing to say, right? Because that sounds like very deterministic. Yeah. Um, but I think his point is more about like authorship. And like whatever discourse you think you begin has already been defanged by the episteme or the cultural institutions defanged in the sense that it doesn't pose a risk to those existing right so so you're right there is like uh, a force that conditions the coming to being of new discourses or reference etc but um that force is like very diffuse and general and not it's not like in an individual person or institution yeah, 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 yeah. or anything there'd be, like there'd that. be no locus of, of no power. no but you're right it, so he does give like a bit of an account there or like gestures towards uh his account of uh like the creation of new new reference or new discourses like that yeah i don't know does that answer yeah yeah no for sure for sure because it, it you know, so much of me is just wants to think of the possibility of like resistance, but obviously, like where there's where there's this power, is there's yeah, this is what I've been working on recently, actually. Because um, not you, satisfactorily, because it seems then if we accept like what you said, which I think is exactly what he's doing or what he would say, it's that we can only ever see these things occurring retroactively. Right, right, and we don't know when the he does specifically say at one point. Um, I don't remember if it's in the order of things or somewhere else, but you can't really see or understand the episteme that you're in yeah. currently. Yeah. Right? So yeah. you don't have that type of um, self-reflective ability. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. How do you explain water to a fish or something like that? Right, right. right exactly. Uh, like, the episteme not only conditions... Um, the possibilities of new discourse or new knowledge but like the way we think is conditioned yeah. by those yeah. right so like in like the modern episteme thinking historically like you can't like step outside the structures of your thought yeah exactly in a way, right? so and that's what he says like in that in that same lecture you mentioned there when he says that you know it's, it's all very Hegelian, and even every attempt we try to get out of the Hegelian dialectic, like, perhaps that's just another 
way that Hegel has foreseen this possibility, right? Where by right. negating it, you are therefore thrown back into it, right? Right. I always think of uh, this is this is a, ta- a bit of a tangent, but um, Karl Popper has a critique of those type of logics. So he talks about like Marxism, Darwinism, and Freudian uh, psychology or psychoanal- psychoanalysis as just those type of logics where they can subsume anything that would um, attempt to contradict them or negate them. Right. Right. I get suspicious of those. those are yeah, no, exactly. Uh, he He's exactly su- suspicious of them and writes of them um, in an attempt to reject them. Yeah. Right. I don't know if he rejects Darwinism. I, I don't think he would be able to go that far no. as like a historian of science, but he's definitely suspicious of the logic, right? Like he has his text on the, the open society, right? Where he's writing against. Yeah. I guess he's, he's writing his national socialism. Maybe. Um, so as, so, as far as, lang- as language goes, what he, what he states is that language was never to be anything more than a particular case of representation for the classics or of signification for us. What do you think of that shift, right? <laughs> what, what is the difference between representation and signification for, for you? If, oh, you know, yeah, you, could, no. you could just point back to no, the text. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> because for me, reading this I don't the first think... time, I was like, I use those terms interchangeably yeah, all the time. No, I don't think he gets a satisfactory um, differentiation. And some of the secondary stuff I've read about Foucault has made just that critique, right? Has it? Yeah. Just like he doesn't explain what he thinks the difference is. Yeah. And he uses that distinction to make a distinction or like yeah. he thinks it's an important distinction between um modes but yeah. yeah he doesn't he doesn't i don't think he gives an answer at all no and like i, w- I was trying to humor him and i think okay what is the right, most basic yeah. uh what were the two representation le- and le- presentation represent and signification signification like right. what is the closest liaison i can think between like a thing in the world and the thing that represents it and I was gonna like try to think about that as being representation, but I would I would say like yeah, I would, if I saw a tree, I would draw a tree, and that'd be pretty close. Right. But then signification, uh, I was, how, like that would that's the a sign. same thing. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe signification allows like a a, a greater level of abstraction, right? So like um, like a chemical. Um, atomic number or something or like an atomic like on the periodic table of elements yeah as like signification but not representation yeah like there's no like that doesn't represent au doesn't represent gold it signifies gold but it doesn't attempt to create a likeness yeah see see whereas the image of something the drawing of a tree would yeah but I don't know. I'm but the, I'm not even I'm not sold on that. No, but <laughs> I don't then, know. Then that's... we enter into the whole like this is a little further on. We think of um, taxonomia or math thesis, right? Yeah. Where it's like, okay, well, then what? How does thinking about things in terms of like trees or all trees in terms of the term tree that is supposed to represent trees, but trees vary so widely between different species of trees that it's it seems almost absurd to say that like okay, 
tree is all things that grow out like above I don't know, five feet yeah, right, out of yeah. the ground. <laughs> like it, it seems odd to then say that. So it seems like in a sense we've gone into this kind of hyper representation even though you know he says we're into signification or whatever like it seems like we've simplified things to a max right especially if we consider the different taxonomic type brackets or whatever that, mm-hmm. that we've come we've discovered through the um through the the age there of, oh my god the, the, the lineaus or lineaus, right? lineaus yeah stage. natural history oh god uh it seems odd that we'd still so and this is another thing. I'm like, okay, to what extent, Foucault, are we to actually take what you say, like consider it and be like, oh, this is a real thing that's occurring? Because it seems to me as though there were all these attempts in a sense, you know, to give names to everything, to bring everything into fruition, to, to give it that, enter it into the taxonomic right, sphere. Right. But at the same time, it's like, we like things easy, like easily digestible and whatnot. But we'll, we 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 can put that on the back burner if you wish, because I know he addresses that to some extent. Um, but I don't know the difference between signification and representation. Yeah, no, I would just say again that I don't think he gives a satisfactory answer at all. No, I don't. Know. For anyone listening, if you if you know the answer, <laughs> please leave it in the. But th- those are the terms we have. I don't know what they are in French. I guess they would be the same. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if the connotation would be different in French. It's, what a guy! Why did he? <laughs> but no, nah, we we digress. We we, we can it, unless there's anything more you wanted to say about that. Uh, no, I don't really have any other thoughts on any, that in particular. Um, you wanted to jump to specifically. Uh. I had a quote here somewhere that I thought might be helpful, but I've lost it. Um, If this is not skipping over too much, I thought we might just talk about the the shift that he sees from the classical episteme to the modern one. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, So on page 207... um, he says, quote, philology, biology, and political economy were established not in the places formerly occupied by general grammar, natural history, and the analysis of wealth, but in an area where those forms of knowledge did not exist, in the space they left blank, in the deep gaps that separated their broad theoretical segments and that were filled with the murmur of the ontological continuum. The objects of knowledge in the 19th century or the object of knowledge in the 19th century is formed in the very place where the classical plentitude of being has fallen silent. So there's a lot there. But this is, I, I think this is what his sections that outline the development and history of those particular fields in the classical episteme, like this is what he's been working up to, right? Is that, and this, is, we, we talked about this earlier, right? Where the there are greater connections between um, the discourses in an episteme than uh, between dis- like two discourses in separate epistemes, right? Right. So um, let me re- look back at this quote here. Uh, they did not occupy, uh, not in the places formerly occupied by general grammar, natural history, and the analysis of wealth. So biology doesn't just supplant natural history 
as the new analysis of life or like the next iteration of the analysis of life and uh to suggest it did would be like a straightforward um or, or would claim that the the structure of knowledge has been the same yeah right and just like oh we've got an upgrade to biology like we we've under we've realized that biology is historical yeah or natural history is historical hence biology yeah uh, so not in the places formerly occupied, but in an area where those forms of knowledge did not exist in the space they left blank. So biology is novel because it's the analysis of life as historical. So that's fundamentally different for Foucault from natural history. Yeah. Natural history was the analysis of life as representational. Right. And th this corresponds to the transition between from order to history. Right, right. We're from classical age to 19th century. Exactly. So modern. So in, in his terms, he says, but we must return, this is on page 238, but we must return in a little more detail to what happened at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century to that too sketchily outlined mutation of order into history into the fundamental modification of those positivities what which was that on? 238 uh, those Sorry. positivities which for nearly a century and a half had given place to so many adjacent kinds of knowledge so and, and then the representation general grammar natural history or whatever and that's the distinct in the case of natural history right he says that he it's not as though or this transition did not occur when we started to imbue with on uh, nature all the elements of history or what we think to be historical it's rather when we started to think about history as being natural in a sense when history being that thing that you can't you can't question right like it's just right there because order like and i i just thought of this now like order seems like a very like a politically charged term just to think about you know authoritarianism or whatever like it seems sure. as though there's a motivation behind it whereas you know obviously that's not the case but his use of that term is interesting because i could you know probably think of a synonym that would do the job like just um like classification or organization yeah. or anything like that but order is is interesting for me but history is like almost the democratization of that thing precisely because it be, it becomes our reality to the point that you can't even recognize it like it's just sure you don't in us you don't think order had that um um closeness in the classical era and like now it just seems uh as foreign to us like i think that's a good point i think yeah. about like the um like the great naturalists, right? So like Alexander von Humboldt, um, he's the only one I can think of right off the top of my head, but where like, of course I'm going to go out into the farest known uh, lands that haven't been explored yet and take vast catalogs and samples of new to new species or new to Europeans species because I'm trying to determine the order that in which those fit and like where they fall in the taxonomy of you know a specific type of plant so like trees or, or whatever 
right? So, so like, uh, I I could see the taking for granted of the world as fundamentally ordered in that age, just as the modern um, episteme takes history is. Right. So, okay. granted. So, you think to whatever would encapsulate or whatever would signify the um, the um, use of order in any given episteme or of, of any of those ages is something that would have been it's it wasn't necessarily they weren't aware of it right it's not as though we are using or mobilizing this sort of discourse yeah. right yeah I mean I'm a little bit wary of Foucault's claim to to not be able to know the episteme you're in because like if Velasquez didn't know that he was in the episteme of representation then why did he paint a painting all about representation right oh right? that's interesting yeah I, I think I mean I think there's maybe a middle ground there right where like you can know the the representation is really important in your contemporary moment. Yeah. But you might not know it's the condition of the whole episteme. Right? Or like you don't might not have the 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 uh breadth of sight to yeah. uh to see that that is like the general mode of knowledge. Yeah. And okay, that that's really interesting cuz that that makes me think that, okay, and the marxists might rip their hair out if what I'm about to say. But if we measure um, ones, because I'm kind of I'm kind of with you there. I, I don't think that it's it's just uh, like ex- necessarily simply like trying to explain water to a fish, right? Yeah. I think there is something of a cultural logic that seeps in to one's consciousness, right? And I think if we measure, or we don't measure, but there are certain indicators that point to that. And it'd be difficult to say whether or not Velasquez was cognizant of it if he was like i am in representation right but right. It do- i don't think it necessarily needs to come out in that form so the way i'd wish sure. i would understand it is by the the fact that that existed and it came to stand in for a whole slew of or, or a whole age is is not something to ignore but then everything else that existed at that time right so things that didn't necessarily subscribe by that so i think i find it interesting because foucault is like you know, quick to say we, there was that uh, age and it, it had all these different characteristics and I would almost agree with him but at the same time, you know, we think of what was necessarily excluded. Right, right, right. So, like, to what extent does every discourse within an episteme adhere to the episteme's mode of knowing? Yeah. Like, is every uh, discourse within the classical age a discourse of representation yeah and to or what like extent by representation to what extent does it require cognizance like very consciously right of a thing for it for, to throw Foucault's project out of whack right of, of there to have been someone oh that's I don't like, think I don't think it requires um like self-consciousness in how you do your discourse for Foucault, but in how you're able to match a certain culture, a certain age, no, or I a don't certain... think that. 
Definitely. I don't think that requires self self consciousness at no, all. No, no, no. But if if such a thing did exist, right? If someone was aware, like they're oh, like, I'm I in see, representation. I see. I, okay, I thought you were saying the opposite. Because um, I right if. If I knew the episteme that I was in and knew, like, the condition of knowledge in my episteme is X, if I knew that and furthermore, like, did something that demonstrated that, yeah, I think that, like, requires a huge amount of self-consciousness. Right. And or, or, like, like yeah. not... Self-consciousness is the wrong word because that means knowledge of myself. Yeah, yeah, For sure. Foucault, it means knowledge of... Uh, the, the, your the, whole the, era. Yeah, the water around you. But, yeah. but precisely by the fact that there are haves and have-nots, I think points to that, where it seems as though there are examples of people that somehow have, are, are closer to that. So you mean have, like Velasquez is a have, like he has yeah, the knowledge I, of representation? And this, this is where perhaps it'd be, yeah. I'd get the Marxists would rip their hair yeah. out or something like this... Uh, like uh, disavowing the kind of lower classes or whatever, but I don't know. Like the other, the, I thought what you were saying is, like I said earlier, like does everything fit and adhere to the episteme? And I think like Foucault's point is just that it has to, yeah, in order to, but to I, exist as knowledge. So maybe you could point to something like alchemy or, or like, uh, like witchcraft as something that does not fit in the episteme in which it exists. Yeah. Right? So you think of, like, alchemy practices in... Uh, I think they would still be around in classical, the classical age, if dying out, um, where, like, the symbol you use for an element is, is uh, connected to the element itself. Right. Right, so there is still that link, like the Renaissance link right. between sign and signified. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, maybe this would be an interesting thing to attempt to, um, like, trace the development of, like, you could just pick alchemy um, from uh, a science, or like what counted as knowledge and as scientific. And how the sh- the change in episteme shifted that out of the realm of what counted as knowledge into pseudoscience or, you know, uh, right, right. So like it, it's like a vestige of the past episteme. Yeah, but that that then serves a certain function if we were to stick with that kind of um, Hegelianism thesis, where that serves a certain role, even if it is in opposition to that, you know, that given system or whatever. It's that kind of, it's the antithesis, right? That the system ultimately right. subsume or, or then is then used as like a, to propel history or whatever, to keep things moving or, or, or whatever, precisely as a condition for the realization of your thesis, right? How do you designate thesis? Like, unless we hit the end of history, but I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah. <laughs> we're past it. <laughs> yeah, history, history's gone. History ended in, in 1989, 1992? Nine, nine, <laughs> 1992. For, yeah, for, for Baudrillard, it was probably like the year 2000 or something. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the classical episteme to the modern one. 
if we could. There's just a yep. couple things we, here I'd want to say. We should we should stop there just to because sure. we're, we're at we're at our hour mark, so we can. Uh, All right. We'll uh, cut this one off. You know. Sounds good. I won't I won't give the whole spiel. You know what to do. But uh, yeah, tune in <laughs> for, smart the, for the next one. It'll it'll come up again soon. All right. Thanks, y'all.